All right, friends. Good morning. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to continue where we left off last week. <clears throat> We've been covering some, I don't know if they're difficult, but some uncomfortable topics over the last couple weeks. Um, but it seems like if the Bible talks about them, they're probably worth talking about in church. So... Remember, Paul is writing back to Corinth, the church that he started. He was there for 18 months. He leaves. He goes on missionary journeys um, and different such things. And uh, the household of Chloe sends him a letter or a message of some sort. And they say, hey, she, the, the letter or the message, it says, hey, we're having trouble here in Corinth. Right? And really, the, the thing we've tried to focus on through the whole book is this idea that Paul introduces uh, in this letter and in others from the very beginning, and there's, there's two types of wisdom and there's two lives, two natures, right? The first wisdom is from below. It's man's wisdom. Uh, months ago when we started, we just looked at slogans, you know, advertisement slogans. Uh, things like, uh, have it your way, right? If you go to Burger King, you have it your way. Uh, Nike is just do it. Slogans that promote ourselves, that, because we like that, right? If someone says, hey, you can come here and you can have whatever you want, we go, oh, that's where I want to be. And so the wisdom that's from above, or I should say from below, it's first carnal. It's, it's dead flesh. The word there is sarca, uh, where we get our word sarcophagus. And it's the idea that it comes from a, a fallen nature that we inherited from Adam. And that nature and that wisdom is at war with the spirit, our new nature. The Bible calls it the new creation in Christ. The Bible calls it the new man in Christ. The Bible says to put on Christ. And it's the idea that we've been created anew in Christ because of what he did at Calvary, right? That his blood was shed at Calvary and that brought our forgiveness. It's the, the, John uses a fancy word in English, propitiation, in, in his letters, meaning it was the exact right payment for sin. And then he rose again from the dead, which demonstrated victory over sin. And that's the victory that we get to walk in today, that we identify with Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we don't have to give in to that old dominant nature, the nature that puts self first. Instead, the new nature in Christ puts Christ first. And then typically, if Christ is first, his people are right after that. So that's kind of the dilemma, the difficulty. And every one of these things that we've talked about, whether it's premarital sex or the sexual relationship inside of marriage, which was our last two weeks, uh, or it's talking about suing each other or talking about how we can relate to one another at communion or all these different ways. It, comes, it boils down to what nature are we living by. And nothing's really changed here in this section either. The difficult portion that we're going to talk about today, it's a lot about relationships and it's about marriage and divorce, which I think is a, uh, it's a hot topic in Christianity and it's a, very, very, it's a varied topic. And that's, what, I think, what makes it so difficult. You have... Um, uh, kind of, I don't know how you'd like to label it, whether you want to say it's conservative or old school or whatever it might be, which is uh, taken mostly from Matthew chapter 5, uh, the idea that uh, divorce is only allowable uh, through um, uh, infidelity, sexual infidelity. And so uh, and we'll, we'll look at these verses. And so that you can take that one verse in that one place and, and try to spread it across all marriages. When we look at all these different verses today, including in 1 Corinthians 7, it's important to realize that whether Jesus said it or Paul says it or whomever says it, that all of these things were written to a specific people in a specific time. Now, for some of you that might think that your spidey text, uh, you know, uh, senses are tingling and I'm going to uh, try to go around the Bible, what it says about divorce, we're not going to do that. We're not making excuses for it. We're not promoting it. We're not saying it's great. What we want to do this morning is to boil it down and look at what does the Bible say about divorce? What does our text say about divorce? Uh, how do we deal with that in our modern day today? And what really is the heart of God? Why is it that there is uh, some prohibitions around divorce and how does that work? So it's kind of a big bite to take, to be honest, and it's a giant subject. And we're going to try to knock it out here in these 50 minutes. We'll see what happens. If you don't mind, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul has just finished up what a sexual relationship, kind of the biblical prescription for a sexual relationship in marriage. And now he's going to go on and talk about other uh, subsets of people. So we'll, we'll start in verse, um, in, in verse 6 uh, to kind of, Take up contextually. 
Verse 6 says this, I say this as a concession, not as a command, meaning that had to do with abstaining from sex for, for a time for prayer. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another that. Remember, we talked about that last week and how Paul was at this point single. Verse 8, now to, all, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So in this first section here today, he's going to talk about unmarried and widows. Now, if you just glance over at verse, 50, or, uh, verse 34 real briefly, um, unmarried and widows, there's three, three people, three subsets of people that Paul's going to talk about in this chapter. He's going to talk about the unmarried. The unmarried are divorced people and people that have prior sexual experience. He's going to talk about virgins. Those are people who have never been married and do not have sexual experience. And then after that, he's going to uh, uh, talk about widows, people that have been widowed. Does that make sense? So those are kind of the subset of people that he's talking about. Now, it's important to pay attention because he's going to kind of talk back and forth a little bit, or I should say write back and Well, I'm sorry. I was going to read verse 34 to kind of show you that. In verse 34, he says, And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. So just to illustrate that he's classifying two different subsets of people here. And here's the thing. Let me say this out from the outset. He is not classifying people so that he can condemn people. That's not what the scripture is doing here. It's because each one of us are oftentimes just a different place in life. And where you're at in your life may not be where somewhere is at in their life. And so Paul's just going to give different prescriptions, different protocols, or however you'd like to put it, for different people in different places in life. It's also important that if we uh, get through it and we, read, we get through the whole chapter here, the rest of it, that part of Paul's, uh, some of this is, he says, is his opinion, We'll read that. He says, I say, not the Lord. Then a little bit farther down, he'll say, the Lord says, and not I. So as part of this is him sharing his opinion. And he'll, he'll say in these different things that there's a present distress. So he's writing to Corinth, which is radically over-sexualized, more so than our society, if, if that can be possible. He's writing to people uh, in a time where overall divorce was looked at as not a big deal, very similar to our time. And he's writing to a church that is completely dysfunctional, and no one, very few people seem to be operating uh, in a spiritual manner. They're more uh, looking out for number one. They're more operating in that, that, that place in the flesh. So that's important to remember that, there, and, uh, and along with that, the present distress is that uh, there's a huge persecution coming. All right? And we know that, that over the next like 150 years, the Caesars are going to kill, uh, there's different numbers, but somewhere estimated around like 60 million Christians. They're just going to keep killing people over the next 150 years. And so Paul's recognizing that. So some of his advice that he gives is based on this radical amount of persecution that is about to take place. Does that make sense? So in this first section where he says to the unmarried and to the widows, I think it's good for them not to remarry. Notice he says, I say. That's important. To the married and the widows, I say. Because look at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. See the differentiation? So in verse 8 through 9, Paul is sharing what he believes is a good prescription. Now, some people would say, well, the Holy Spirit you know, um, uh, led him to write this, so it's from the Holy Spirit. That is one way to look at it. Or the Holy Spirit led him to say, this is my opinion. So you can figure out which one it is. In this case, there's a very clear context. And the context that we'll read later is that they're having trouble and that bad things are coming. So he's just making the point, if you're satisfied with being single, being unmarried, meaning either divorced uh, or, or, um, well, divorced really, uh, or, or having sexual experience in the past, but you're not currently married. He says, that's where you're at. He says, my encouragement is to stay in that place. He says, but if you wrestle with that, right? Because he's going to go on and give a qualifier. And he says, verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says, he makes a point, he says, look, if that's not where you're at in your life, and you have sexual appetite, and I think we could probably look at other places where other things are important. He says, then you shouldn't just try to suppress that and ignore getting remarried. Does that make sense? 
So it's a very practical idea. And, you know, Jesus in, in Matthew 19 talks about the idea that, that there's different giftings and the, the eunuch for the kingdom gifting, he says that's given by God. And some people have it and some people do not have it. So these, these are kind of weird things, right? Because for a lot of the time, when we're, especially when we're single and going through those things, we just turn away from sexual appetite. But we turn away from it, give it to God, and then ultimately it's up to him and we wait on him to bring us a spouse. So now he's saying the same thing. He's just saying, look, if this is something you struggle with, it'd be better if you could stay single. And he'll talk more about that in a minute here. But if, you, if you're unable to do that, then go ahead and get remarried. That's what he says. Verse 10 says this, to the married. So he talked about unmarried and widows, and now in verse 10 he's talking to married people. He's talking to married believers, right? Because he's writing to Corinth, and he's addressing married people in a church in Corinth. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. So he says, this isn't my idea. This is what the Lord says. He says, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried and be, or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, the first question might be, why does he say uh, a wife shouldn't separate from her husband, but use the word divorce for uh, a husband must not divorce his wife? And lots of people have speculated on this. Really, what seems to be the most likely outcome is that the word separate there, uh, I can't pronounce it in the Greek. It's really long. Uh, Essentially, it was used as the same word for for divorce. It was just a synonym in, in that day in Greek, for divorce. So it's most likely more of a stylistic just choosing of words that he says, you know, this is, uh, you shouldn't separate from your husband and you shouldn't divorce your wife. Now this, this is basically a quote from Jesus, right? Notice here, he gives no qualifiers. Did you guys notice that? So if we were to turn to Matthew chapter five, let's flip over there. So in Matthew chapter 5, and in verse 31, this is what Jesus says. Verse 31 says this, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's, let's back up for a second. Because in this one, what we read here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gave no qualifiers, did he? He just said, if you're married, you shouldn't get divorced. Now, in Jesus' first statement that we have in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, if you're married, he says, if you've heard it said that you can get a certificate of divorce. But then he says, if you exercise that right and you divorce your spouse, you give her that certificate of divorce, if you exercise that and you go and marry another person, he says, you make your wife a victim of divorce. Now, here's the thing. This is where it gets even stickier. In your translation, depending on what translation you have, it says something different, doesn't it? Because the newer translations, like the RSV uh, or the New Revised Standard, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, the NIV, uh, the um, uh, ESV, those all say, you make your spouse, you make her the victim of adultery, or, or excuse me, of adultery. That, the, in other words, the spouse that you divorced is the victim. Now, if you have an older translation, like the King James, I think even the New King James, it says that if you divorce her, then you make her an adulterer. And so, which is it? The reality is, hopefully, by the end, we can go with the newer idea, and this is why: the old idea makes no sense. And when we look through all these scriptures, I, I hope that we can come to terms with that. This idea that if I cheat on my spouse and then divorce my spouse, that that makes them an an adulterer. That's ridiculous, right? I'm the adulterer. So we have to be careful with translations, and and translators do their best, but they're they're, they're translating (laughs) from uh, Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek uh, to, to get our language. So here's the deal. In this context, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the masses, right? And what is the Sermon on the Mount about? The entire, if we were to go through and read a big portion of it, in, the, in fact, the, first, the, the section before this, it says, You have heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. 
If you go to the next session, uh, or the, the section right above it, you have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Then this section, you have heard it that it's been said, anyone who divorces. So what the Sermon on the Mount in, in large portion is about is Christ is relating to the masses, you've heard the law. This is what the law has said. You've heard the pharisaical take on the law, right? And later on, a couple hundred years from now, the Talmud is going to come out. And you have all these different commentaries, Jewish commentaries on the law. So what he's saying is, you've heard these things said. You've heard these said. You've heard these said. But then he's expanding on the law with the heart of the law, right? He says, so he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, you could issue a certificate of divorce and send your wife away. If she hadn't cheated on you, you were not allowed to get remarried. Here's the interesting thing. Anybody remember out of Leviticus chapter 20 what the penalty is for cheating on your spouse? Death. Public stoning. So that that shows us something about what God thinks of adultery, adultery, doesn't it? God says in, in Leviticus chapter 20, If a person has sexual relations with the spouse of another person, both of those people, the spouse and the person who initiated or who who was part with that, are to be stoned to death. So two questions. Number one, why why doesn't Jesus say that here? So interestingly enough, one of the things that the Jews lost, and it was actually a fulfillment of prophecy, was the right to execute people. If you remember, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, pretty much every religious political group around, what are they constantly doing? They're going to Pilate. Hey, Pilate, kill this guy. Kill Jesus. Why? They don't have the right to kill Jesus. It was taken from uh, from them from the Romans. So they can't execute people, and we don't know how often this was, this was practiced and whatnot. It's still practiced in a lot of the countries uh, around Israel today in the Middle East, uh, the stoning of death. Typically, it's only the woman that gets stoned to death. I'm not advocating for that. We're just talking contextually. So Jesus, in this case, he's speaking to the masses in a place under Roman rule, and he's talking about the heart behind the law. Because what had happened was, and we'll see even more of this later in another passage next, what happened was, no matter what the law says, people will try to manipulate it. We will to try to get what we want. So what's happening in, this, in Jesus' day at this time, there's two major rabbinical ideas about divorce. And you can go back and you can read Deuteronomy 24, but basically it's the first four verses. And the idea is that if your spouse does something unseemly sexually, then you can divorce them which is interesting because normally they'd be stoned to death. But he says you can issue them a certificate of divorce. So now in, in common here, there's two different rabbis, and I can't remember the names. I think one is like Hillel, and the other guy is like Rabbi Rafa or something like that. And one guy says that his interpretation of, of Deuteronomy chapter 24 is unseemly, means that you can hand your wife a certificate of divorce for like burning your toast. Anything, anything that you find that you don't like about her, you can kick her to the curb. Whereas Rafa says, no, 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 the traditional idea holds true that uh, you cannot divorce a person unless they're sexually unfaithful. So those are kind of the two ideas of the day. And these are prominent ideas. Interestingly enough, if you will, from here, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Another conversation with Jesus about marriage and divorce. So there's a few things we're trying to gain from this. Number one, there's a context that he's addressing. Number two, if you try to take those two verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as standalone verses on divorce, you're wildly incorrect, aren't you? Because we just showed that Jesus had a stipulation for divorce that Paul doesn't include in chapter 7, which also points and helps us to understand that we may not understand everything that he's saying because he's writing to Corinth who had specific questions that he's answering. Does that make sense? So we want to get the whole picture of what God's heart is. So in chapter 19, Matthew 19 and verse 1, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, so he's talking to different people, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Now, some Pharisees came to him. So if you go look at Mark chapter 10, This is the the parallel passage of Mark chapter 10. That's what this is. Um, Mark chapter 10 says significantly less than this passage does. But it's the same event. 
the Pharisees come. They're trying to test him. They're trying to catch him in poor, either in a lie or in poor doctrine. And they, so they come and they ask him a question. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him and test him, uh, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So if we were to look at Mark 10, which we won't, for time's sake, all it says is, is it okay to divorce your wife? Why am I bringing all this out? Oftentimes, our opinions of Scripture get formed because we read one set of verses and then we kind of ignore a lot of other stuff and we go, this is the way it is. And you say, well, maybe, you know, and I'm not here to accuse you of doing that. I have no idea. I know the first time that divorce and remarriage was ever explained to me, we turned to Mark 10 and they said, see, you can only get divorced if there's uh, 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 infidelity and if you get divorced for any other reason, then you have to stay single for the rest of your life, even if it's your partner that divorces you. That's how it was explained to me. And I think that's how it gets explained to a lot of people. But the reality is that's not what the scripture says. That's not what the scripture teaches. So what we're trying to build is an overall idea of the fact that we take each one of these pieces, each one of this, these pieces of light that we have, and we walk on it, walk in it. So this question that is only listed as, can we get divorced in Mark chapter 10, is there's a lot of, of context and a lot of uh, uh, extra information here in this question. They are asking about a popular rabbinical idea. Can I divorce my wife for any reason at all? Can I divorce my husband for any reason at all? Can I just get rid of them? So this is Jesus' response. Haven't you read? So again, he's quoting. He's going to quote Genesis. He's going to reference Genesis. And then he's going to come back and talk about the law. Haven't you read? He replied, at the beginning of creation, uh, excuse me, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, last week when we talked about the sexual relationship in marriage, uh, the, the biblical prescription for it, and when we talked about the, two weeks ago what fornication does in our minds and bodies, you can see that when, God, when, when Jesus makes this point again and again, the two become one flesh. It's not just a metaphorical idea. Obviously, you don't become one body, but you become, in a sense, one nature. Because what a marriage is supposed to be, if you look at, now he says in the beginning. So the first marriage that ever was, was literally Adam and Eve, right? And God determined it was not good for Adam to be by himself. He brings Eve, he creates Eve uh, from Adam, taking from Adam and creates woman. And and then there's marriage. Post-marriage, in the little bit that we have before the fall, what do they do? They walk around naked in a garden doing botany and eating fruit. That is what Adam and Eve do, Right? Now, are we making, we saying, hey, we should all walk around naked if we're married? No, we're not saying that. Because the picture is this, that there was no secrets and they hid nothing, right? When you're completely naked in front of another person, whether it's physically or emotionally or whatever it might be, it is, it's, what, it, it's what we long for. We long for an intimacy. We long for a friendship. We long for a companionship, a fellowship that has no fear in it, right? Isn't that what marriage is supposed to be? He says that there's no fear between the two, no fear of assault, not just physical assault, but no fear of emotional assault, no fear of being made fun of, no fear of being judged, no fear of being measured and found wanting. That's what we look for in a relationship, isn't it? Somebody that that we can love and be loved in return. We have ultimate confidence. So when he says that the two are to become one flesh, and and last couple weeks we looked at like oxytocin production and how that happens in sexual relationships and how that uh, can build a relationship. It's one of the few hormones in the body that actually has a positive feedback loop, meaning oxytocin makes us feel intimacy and then that creates more oxytocin, which makes us feel more intimacy. And when you break that cycle over time with multiple partners, it actually destroys and minimizes how much oxytocin your body will make actually can be brought to a point where you cannot feel close to someone anymore. So there's these ideas that are are physiologically at work here that that Jesus just explains it this way. The two become one flesh. So he says, he makes the statement, he says, if the two become one flesh, if that is being built and is happening, he says, never let someone tear that apart. So the issue at hand is frivolous divorce. Can we agree on that? In Matthew chapter 19, that's the issue at hand. You know, the Bible is actually, as far as direct reference, very silent on spousal abuse. 
in, in, in the context of linking spousal abuse to a verse that talks about divorce. And that, that, that can make us feel scared. It can make us feel worried. It can also bring us to very weird conclusions, can it? Have you ever been told or know someone that's been told to stay in an abusive relationship? And I'm, here's the thing, and I want to be careful here. I think, and this is an opinion, you can throw it right in the trash, because it's just my opinion. I think the reason, because there's, there's no flow chart in the Bible of what abuse is. Right? You can't turn, there's maps of, the, of old Israel, but you can't turn the back and go, if this, then, oh, yes, okay, that goes that way, okay, the, okay, kick person to curb. That doesn't exist in the Bible. I actually thought about making a flow chart because it's just such a huge topic. It's so bizarre, right? But I, my opinion is that I don't think the Bible lists abusive patterns because oftentimes what we might want to label them, they're just not true. That, that we will make more out of something than it really is. And so if there were a pattern of abusive behaviors that we could just look at and, and go, oh, this is it, then we would oftentimes in our own mind exaggerate things, use that as a fulcrum, and divorce people. That's just how human, that's what they're doing. They're taking a rabbi's interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and they're saying, can we divorce our spouses for anything at all? They're taking God's good law, and they're perverting it to try to get what they want. It's what human beings do. So in this case, he's making, Jesus is referring back to, to creation, saying this is what marriage is supposed to be. Verse 7, Why then, they asked, did Moses command the man, uh, uh, a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice how they phrase it. They're literally asking Jesus, well, then why did God tell us to get divorced? That's what they're saying to him. They're saying, why did he, if he didn't want us to divorce women that didn't please us, why did they do that? And, and let me mention something here. This is not a good attitude. That probably goes without saying. Like, Jesus is not promoting this. The, the law doesn't promote this. You know, in our society, there's a big um, uh, kind of ambush or an assault on the idea of, of male leadership, or, you know, they call it taking down the patriarchy. And there's some half-truth, because this is the, the crummy patriarchy right here. Right? This is the one that, that Christ came to deliver us from. This is the one, and, and the law was never meant to be made this way. So, but what we have today isn't necessarily that. What we have today is kind of just an absolute rejection of any kind of gender role, any kind of leadership, anything like that. But what's happening here is that Jesus is addressing people that have just a very low value for marriage and unfortunately for women. And it's going to get a little bit worse here. So they say, well, then why did he command us to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus answers them. He says, Moses permitted. They said, why did God command us? Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. This also further supports the NIV ESV translation of Matthew chapter 5. That Jesus very clearly iterates here that the, the person who commits adultery is the person that frivolously divorces their spouse and marries another person. Does that make sense? Here's the kicker about the prohibitions about remarriage. If you read this, if we consider it, the prohibition about remarriage for, for things other than adultery, and we'll talk more about that, is based on protecting people from the person that's frivolously divorcing people. In other words, God is not sitting in heaven, you know, like the Oprah mean going, and you're an adulterer, and you're an adulterer, and one for you, and one for you. That's not his goal. What he's saying is if you're kicking men if you're kicking spouses to the curb, men or women, you don't get to get married again. That's what he's saying. Because what he's saying is the problem is you, the divorcer. Here's the kicker about divorcing and about divorce. I am not a master marital counselor. I've probably done, I don't know, 15, 20 marital counsel couples that I've, that I've had an opportunity to talk to. But in that small Amount and, 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 and talking to other folks that I know and pastors not sharing personal details, but just about like, hey, what did you say about what do you think about this or what do you think about that or whatever? I would say the majority of marriages end because of both people. It's, it, it can be, and it sometimes is one person, but oftentimes it's both people. And here's the thing. 
Paul is writing to believers back in our text, and he is saying, do not divorce your Christian spouse. The hope is that you will both, we will both, however you want to phrase it, I'm not trying to be accusatory. The hope is that we will act like Christians in our marriage. In other words, the hope is that there will be forgiveness. And then, you, and then the immediate question comes. Peter asked this, right? How many times do I forgive them? Isn't that what we do? It's what they did. It's what we do. Well, whoa, whoa. Okay, forgiveness, how many times? Well, Jesus said seven times 70. So 490, 491, and they're gone. That's, that's what he meant there. Maybe not. Maybe it was just such an exceedingly large number. Because remember, what's, what is the, the, uh, the, the disciples' response? They're just like, that's impossible. That's their response, right? That's impossible. Interestingly enough, there's another illustration that happens here. So then he he tells the Pharisees that. Then verse 10, the disciples. So the Pharisees are gone now. We know from other passages he's actually left, and now he's just talking to the Pharisees. I'm, I'm sorry, he's just talking to the disciples. The disciples said to him, so the big 12, his followers, the people that are supposed to like be godly. They say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to get married. Congratulations. Your apostles, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Their attitude is literally like, if I can't kick my lady to the curb for anything, it's better if I just stay single. That's pretty disgusting, isn't it? That is a radically disgusting point of view on marriage. But it's one that they had societally. It's one that, to some extent, we have societally. Right? So much so that a lot of people now are saying, why get married? It's just, it, you know, and, and, and more people are having vows that say, when we fall out of love, then we'll part, you know, amiably. And all, the, all these things are happening. So it's funny, because there really is nothing new under the sun, is there? So these disciples are just like, when they hear this crazy idea that Jesus has that you should act in the spirit of God and love your spouse, they're just like, that it's not worth getting married. That's their idea of what it is to walk in the spirit, to just avoid situations where you have to. Isn't that wild? But that's what they're saying. So Jesus, he says this to them, and he goes on, he talks about the gift of of being single and not, not having to go that direction. But here's the point. Paul doesn't include any any kind of stipulations. He just says, don't leave your spouse. Jesus includes a stipulation where he says, unless it's for adultery. But he includes the stipulation because the point is this, that unless someone's truly wounded you to the core, and and I think we, we can get a grasp of how deep God understands the wound could be. If the old covenant remedy for adultery was that person gets killed, I think we can understand how seriously God takes adultery. How seriously he thinks of, uh, of what it does to the other person. I'm not saying that it can't be healed. I'm not saying that God can't do a work. I know some couples where God has done a great work. And, and, and they, they've gone on to live uh, miraculous Christian lives. I also know some couples that have been absolutely decimated. It's a very interesting thing, I think. Because... The fact that God says that you can get divorced and remarry after adultery seems to indicate that God, and I don't know how to phrase it because, you know, he either understands that sometimes you can't come back from adultery, you physically are unable, or he understands that and allows that you don't put in the work to do it. Isn't that weird? It seems inappropriate to say out loud, isn't it? But why does God give that license? But he does. But it's important to understand the prohibition and the, the, the reason that the adultery clause is in there is to prevent people that aren't willing to try in their marriage. And again, I'm not making a judgment call of anybody in this room because I have no idea. But people who are willing to frivolously hand a certificate of divorce for, for something less than catastrophic. Does that make sense? And so the certificate is to protect other people from the divorcer. The certificate is not so that you can just make other, you know, oh, you can't get remarried. No, you can't get remarried. Oh, your husband was horrible, beat you? Yeah, you can't get remarried. You'd be an adulterer. That's crazy. That's, that's crazy thought. So Paul gives us, if we flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he gives us the hope. Because he says 
to the married, I give this command, I not the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. See, it's there. It's both genders. It's both sides of it. That must remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's the real key, is that you are waiting to be reconciled to your spouse. Now, here's another thing that will come up. That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. That's the crazy thing about sin. It wasn't fair that Jesus died. And I'm not trying to just make arbitrary, you know, dismissal statements about fairness. But when you look at the love of Christ, when you look at the interaction that Christ has with his people, that he has with you, when you look at how we're called to be good to, the, to, to, to one another in these things, the love of Christ always walks through the hurt. The love of Christ has no self-centeredness. It doesn't consider self. The love of Christ considers others. Now, that doesn't say that this is in a vacuum, that there wouldn't be difficulty, that there wouldn't be trial, that there wouldn't be these things. But what I would say, and you can disagree with me, is this. The bottom line, if your spouse divorces you, the goal is to act like Jesus. Now, in, in, a, in a practical way, at the end of Ephesians 5, and we looked at this last week, there's something really important because Paul says this. He says a, wife, or a husband must see to it that he loves his wife. And it's not agape. It's, it's the word there is to cherish his wife. Literally to kiss is what it is. It's the idea of cherishing. He says a husband must see to it that he cherishes his wife. And a wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here's the thing. In general, there can be outliers, but in general, men and women perceive love differently. Right? Women perceive love by being cherished. And it can be different things. You know, if I get up off the couch and do the dishes, my wife feels cherished. So like once a year, no matter what, I make sure, <laughs> whether it needs it or not. <laughs> no, I, that's just something when she feels that I understand that she has work to do and I pitch in or, you know, that she perceives cherished by me. You know, I, I, and, and, and I might have a weird, I might be, oh, I, there's no mind about it. I'm broken and weird, but I'll tell you what. This is, I don't, I'm not condoning pet peeves because I think that they're just kind of code for I like to be selfish in this area. But when we first got married and we dialogued, I would constantly get interrupted and it would enrage me, which is not good. I'm not advocating for that. But for some other reason, I think, I think it's because my, my folks just perpetually interrupted each other. It was really bizarre in our house and, and they still do. But anyway... So over time in our communication, she, just, she learned that it upsets me. I'm not validating. I say I should get upset. But it upsets me if I get interrupted like that, if I'm trying to communicate a thought and it gets interrupted. So a crazy thing begins to happen. She doesn't have to not interrupt me, right? And I don't have to do the dishes because I'm, I'm my own man in my own house, right? And I can have that attitude, can't I? And I will end up single. <laughs> No, she loves me. She's really kind. She probably wouldn't divorce me for that. But you see, you see what I'm saying? Like, I can demand my rights. I can go to the old nature and say, I don't have to do the dishes. I've been at work all day or whatever stupidity I can come up with, right? <laughs> Justification for it. And she can say the same thing. She'd be like, you know why I keep interrupting you? Because your thoughts are stupid and they're not worth hearing. <laughs> right? But if she does that, are we going to communicate? Or if I do that, are we going to communicate? Typically, no, we're not. We're going to drift. And then what happens in a relationship when you stop communicating and you drift? You start making junk up, don't you? It's weird the kind of stuff that we can make up. All of a sudden, there's these crazy miscommunications and, oh, you did this and you meant that I'm stupid. And you're like, oh, no, I just was thinking it'd be nice to have some salt with dinner. You know? And then we, we get all this stuff that kind of, you, don't, you hate my food or you don't, you don't appreciate me. or you, don't, you And it's like, whoa, whoa. It's because we drift. So it's important when we look at what's happening here, when we look at marriage and it's failing, that we, we really look at, am I acting like Jesus? Am I walking in the new nature? Or am I walking in my old nature? Because my old nature will always say, make sure I'm taken care of. Make sure I'm justified. Make sure whatever it is. And it's out of fear. That's the crazy thing. It's out of fear. If I don't stand up for myself, I'll lose my identity. I'll lose who I am. This person will prevail over me. 
You know, there's a, in 1 Peter, we don't have time, there's an incredible verse where Paul kind of lays out again, or I'm sorry, it's in Peter. Paul doesn't lay it out, Peter does. Peter lays out again that, that, that simple idea of, of, of respect and cherish, right? He lays it out again. And one of the things that he's, when he's talking to wives, he says, he, he makes the point of respecting your husband and considering all these things. And then he says, and not being overcome with fear. Because I think in, in, in oftentimes, men too sometimes, but in women there can be this fear that if I don't establish myself, I'll get usurped by this man and I'll lose myself. And so therefore I have to stand up and say no and all these things. And again, we're talking about conversations. We're not talking about violence or something like that. And what, what, what Peter's saying there is we don't want to succumb to that fear. And men, we don't want to be jerks and then be surprised why our wives aren't attracted to us. It's a very mutual thing. So Paul says at the end of the day, he says, if you get divorced, he says, you need to wait to see if you can be reconciled. So in practical speak, what happens if you get divorced and you're waiting? My opinion, again, and this is just from these different scriptures that we read, once your spouse goes and is with someone else, they're with someone else. That sexual bond is broken, and now they're with someone else. And if you asked me, I'd say you're free. Now, but what if you're the adulterer? What if you're, and I, you go, oh, I've actually met a person that years and years and years ago uh, was talking to me and basically said, yeah, I cheated on my wife, and the Bible says that now she can divorce me, and she is, and it's going to work out because now I'm going to marry someone else. And I was like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. So your, your interpretation of the scripture and God's heart is that let's completely ruin your spouse's emotional state security, and then that's good because she'll leave you and you can have what you want. It's kind of weird. I would say this. If you're the adulterer and your spouse divorces you, you need to seek the Lord because the reality is I don't know what you should do. You should probably take a real hard look at why you did that, real hard look at uh, uh, in your own heart because we can blame a lot of reasons on other people I wasn't getting enough sex. She didn't respect me enough. He didn't cherish me enough. He didn't provide the way I liked. Whatever it might be, we can come up with a lot of reasons why we're going to go down those roads. But the reality is every one of us that sins against our spouse in, other way, in, in some way, we sinned against them because we chose to do it. It didn't matter how we got treated. It didn't matter what they did to us. We chose. If our spouse is yelling at us and we decide to scream back, guess whose sin that is? Ours. If our spouse is manipulating us and we decide to try to manipulate them back, guess whose sin that is? That's ours for what we did. We're always responsible for what we did. So we have the opportunity as Christians, as married people, to humble ourselves and attempt to cherish and to respect. And when you get two people, and this is probably societally very unpopular, even from what I've seen, when you get one man Who's, and it can go either way, but especially one man who humbles himself and cherishes, it's, a matter, it's amazing how that wife will respond. It really is. And even the opposite's true to an extent also. When you get one woman that's willing to respect her husband, listen to him, not mock him, these type of things, then at the end of the day, it'll be impressive how much that man will be willing to communicate with you and to walk with you on that. Yeah. Interesting stuff, human beings. So what's the point of all this in these two verses that we just spent half an hour on? It's one of the hardest, I think, dilemmas to work with because what we have is a lot of emotion, a lot of feelings. We have an old nature that's rotten, and we have a new nature that's trying to pierce through years and years of old nature living. And in a marriage, when there's familiarity, for some reason, it just seems easier and easier and easier to despise what we're familiar with. When the reality is that this person who's next to us is an eternal being and a a son or a daughter of Christ, a creation of God, and we should be treating them, whether we're getting divorced or not getting divorced, whether they're being kind or not being kind, we should be treating them like Jesus would treat them. So what happens if you're in a fight? All right, I know I've heard about it before, but <laughs> what happens if you're in a fight? And, it, you know, it can be anything. 
um, you know, something crazy happens, like uh, somebody's socks get left on the floor in the bathroom. I mean, just catastrophic stuff, right? <laughs> so depending on how your household works, either you have one person that does the laundry, or maybe you have mutual laundry responsibilities, I, you know, whatever. There's no godly way. It just it works one way or the other. It is what it is. But let's say you have a, a household where the, the laundry situation is mostly handled by one person. And so the person who doesn't do the laundry goes in to take a shower, throws the socks on the floor, takes the shower, leaves, and there they are. There are the socks. The person who does the laundry walks in and has options at that point, right? You can look at those socks and you can be like, that POS, I cannot believe he despised me like this. Right? Because we go nuclear really fast sometimes with our spouses, don't we? Like other people are like, oh, they left the socks. They just stay with us. They were in a rush. It was cool. Our spouse does it. We're like, those devils. Right? Because we walk in and we look at it and we're like, they know I don't want the socks on the floor. They know that. They know that they go in the hamper. They know right where the hamper is. They could have done this, but they didn't. Right? And it, we escalate. And we, and, we, and we absorb all the disrespect in the world. They, just, they don't respect us. They hate us. We're dirt to them. All these things, right? And we, all, we know this is true, right? We've all experienced this with some minor thing in our, in our life where we go and we, we feel it. So then we have, we've already made one decision, and that is to escalate. Not to, to look at it and go, well, I don't like this, but I can serve them. And I could pick them up and I could throw them in the hamper. And maybe I could talk later and say, hey, you know what? I feel very disrespected when you won't take the time to pick up your socks and put them in the hamper. And, and it would help me to understand where our relationship is and how you feel about me if you'd be willing to do that. Right? So we can escalate and immediately, and if we escalate, then we, we can stomp into the living room and be like, what are these? You know, wad them up and throw them, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. You're over there cooking, you just throw them in the spaghetti sauce. What now? You know, we just, we can escalate it. We can escalate it. Or once we've had our meltdown in the bathroom over the socks, we can invite Christ into it. And so, you know what, Lord? Ultimately, you're my validation. Not this, this woman or this man. They don't make who I am. You make who I am. My security, my safety, my identity, it's all wrapped up to you, that I'm a, I'm a son or a daughter of the king. And, and, you know, though I suffer such travails on this earth, I can still continue to walk with you and be joyful that I'm never going to hell. And, and I have physical blessings. I have a home that I can throw socks on the floor or somebody else can. Right? We can begin to reason and to introduce and to adopt that new nature in Christ. You love this person that may or may not have, I have no idea, disrespected me. I have no idea what went down. I don't have to escalate. But if I decide not to escalate, then that gives me the opportunity to have a good conversation later on, to express my feelings. Now, on the other side, if you de-escalate about the socks, and the other person says, well, I don't care. I mean, what does it matter if I pick them up or you pick them up? I mean, you were there, right? Again, another choice. Well, you were there too. Why couldn't have you done it? Well, I work all day. You think I don't? Right? You see how this happens? And it escalates. And it, it only takes, usually, it only takes one person to de-escalate. And just say, you know what? This isn't, what's happening right now is not good. It's not honoring to Christ. It's not helping our marriage. And if you're willing to, I would really like to have a conversation that would go in a direction of helping us to be like Jesus. And then the other person has an option too, right? What I have found is that given time to let things cool off, that most people are willing to do that. Does that make sense? So a big part of marriage, a big part of this is walking, well, not a big, all of it. It's walking like Jesus. So when you see these prohibitions, don't get remarried if you don't get cheated on. If you divorce someone and you're not cheated on, don't get remarried. That's the common vernacular of what it's saying. Because the issue is, if, you're, if you divorce someone because you didn't walk like Jesus, 
Don't do that to someone else, because you will. And I would too. If we think, you know, it's the old saying, no matter where you go, there you are. You can marry the perfect spouse and you'll ruin it because you're there. And I would too if I decide not to walk like Jesus. So it's important when we read these things and we read about divorce, we read all these things, the context is all, all the same. The prohibitions are there to protect people from shallow people that refuse to walk like Jesus. That's what they're there for. And so your, your deal might be different. Maybe you were abused. You know, if we go on here, and we will, uh, one of the things Paul talks about, well, we'll read it, and then we'll, we'll kind of loop back to. He says there, verse uh, uh, 12, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. So again, he's sharing an opinion. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not a believer, he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through the husband. Uh, Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. Bound to what? Bound to the marriage. They're free to remarry, is Paul's point. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in this next instance, what's happening in the ancient world is that people are already married and one spouse gets saved. And so what Paul is putting forward is that one of the spouses gets saved. And what he's saying is, if the other spouse is willing to dwell peaceably with you, and and again, (laughs) remember how this works. This is like the temple of Aphrodite. This is the temple of Apollos. If you're, you're either like, the whole idea of atheist, yeah, there were some philosophers that kind of spouted some atheistic ideas. There always have been. But the vast majority, it's just like America, right? I mean, if you interview America, like 70% of America is Christians or they, they believe in God, right? Well, it's the same thing back then, but a bigger percentage, like probably 98% or something based on uh, anecdotal evidence. But the vast majority of people believed in a God. And so what Paul is saying is, your Apollos-loving husband decides he'll stay with you, and now you're going to follow Jesus, that you should stay with him. But he says, but if, if your spouse is not willing to stay with you, then you let them go, because they're, they're, they're not willing to stay with you. And one of the things that he, the, he notes two things. First, he says that he's not saying when he says they're sanctified through you, he is not saying that if you get saved, your spouse gets saved, and so do your children. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you, as a believer, are able to stay with your unbelieving spouse, you are a conduit, you are uh, a testimony, you are a, able to walk with your spouse as you walk with Jesus and show your spouse how good Jesus is. I think it's important that the vast majority, it's show your spouse, not tell your spouse. Show them. If you get saved, or if you decide you get ignited for the Lord, and your spouse is not, and you come home every night, and you're just like, you need to go to church, you need to go to Bible study. Don't you know, Jesus said don't to use that word. Don't you know this? Guess what? All of a sudden, you're not dwelling in peace anymore, and your spouse will leave you probably. It's about showing them, about loving them. He's going to go on here in chapter 7. He's going to say, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever... Oh, wait, sorry. I, went, I jumped ahead. Uh, yeah, sorry. Verse uh, 15. The end of verse 15. God has called us to live in peace. So he notes the, the possible for sanctification, but then if they're going to leave, he says, let them go. And the reason he gives, he says, you're not bound because God has called you to peace. So this is important. In a marriage, he says, it's okay to let your spouse go, the unbeliever to the, uh, to the believer. It's okay to let them go because God has called you to live in peace. Now, again, I say, not the Lord. This is my opinion that you can take this and there's, there's something that's at work here. And I think that this is where you can talk about abuse and so forth. In Malachi chapter 2, the, uh, in Malachi chapter 2, God is speaking to the men of Israel. And he, what he says to the men of Israel is he says, you guys cry and whine, literally, you cry and whine because I don't accept your sacrifices anymore. And he says, but I don't accept your sacrifices 
basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, because you're rude to your wives and you treat your wives like trash. And he goes, so because of that, I don't listen to you anymore. And he says, your words to your wife, this he does say, he says, your words have become violence. And I know, you know, if you like popular, you know, red pill culture, that words can never be violence, I get it. Apparently God disagrees with that a little bit, so you can talk to him when you get to heaven. But he says to them, he says, your words, they become violence. And the idea that God is communicating this, and Peter has something similar to say to men, he says, if you mistreat your wife, he says, don't do that because your prayers will be hindered. But in the Old Covenant, he says, you're mistreating your wives, so I ignore you now, and your sacrifices are worthless to me. So we know from certain places and, and from God's heart, whether it's Genesis or Malachi, Deuteronomy 24, whether it's the New Testament, the Old Covenant, that the goal of marriage is to act the way God wants us to act, to be a mutual blessing. That's the whole goal. But the reality is that if we mistreat our, uh, our spouses, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, if we manipulate them with these type of things, that they, we're, it's sin. We shouldn't do that. We have to repent from that. And I would say, I, not the Lord, if you're in a marriage that's radically abusive, and, and that would take some quantifying, I guess, through discussion, that you're free to separate. Because here's the thing. If you're in a radically abusive, and I'm not talking about someone complains about your cooking or someone complains about what job you have. I'm not talking about just disagreements. I'm talking about true abuse. You're stupid. I can't believe you. Are you serious? Because here's the thing. If you're in a relationship like that and you have children, your children will learn how they're supposed to be treated by their spouse, especially girls. When you look at the percentages of, of women that marry abusive husbands that came from abusive families, it's astronomical, or families without a father. There's an incredible correlation there. It's, it's so weird how they will learn to find comfort in the abuse of their husbands, or vice versa. The psychology behind it is just radical, what happens to us. So to, to stay in a marriage that, that's truly abusive, under some guise that that's what, what, what you've been commanded to do by the Bible, is unwise. Get help. I'm not saying be out on your own, but get help in there. Because you don't want your kids growing up seeing that, and you shouldn't have to endure that either. So you say, what was, what's your answer? What would you do? I think Paul says it. You, you separate, in those verses there in, in nine, uh, 9 and 10, you separate and you hope to be reconciled. And most abusive spouses, once you separate and hope to be reconciled, they're going to bounce out. They're not going to hang out. They're not going to want to do that. You don't want to walk through that on your own. Get, get trusted, godly help for that. But uh, I don't believe for a second that the Bible calls us to just hang in there and expose ourselves and our children day after day uh, to, to emotional or psychological, sexual, physical, any kind of abuse. And I don't think the Bible says that either. It's, it's illogical. Verse, well, we'll stop. That's enough happy time. We'll look next week at some different, a little bit different stuff. It's such a grievous topic. I would say this, and this is the truth. I think this is the biblical truth. There is no marriage that cannot be saved when both people humble themselves. I mean, I, I suppose because God makes it, I would make the exception in adultery. Apparently, there's just some people that cannot come back from that, and it's devastating. And I would never measure someone, and the Bible doesn't measure someone for divorcing for that. The actual, the word there oftentimes is pornea, right? Any kind of illustration, any kind of sexual immorality, any kind, any kind of sexual contact, the Bible truly gives license for divorce through pornography. My opinion would be it should happen a little slower, but the Bible gives license for it. And so we want to be we want to be careful. But if you're just having issues in your marriage because they're frivolous and you're selfish, like we all are, you can repent. And there's big hope. Uh, you, marriage is a two-way street, so no, you can't guarantee what your, your spouse is going to do. But what you can guarantee is what you're going to do. You can guarantee how you're going to act. And you, can, you can guarantee what your spirit you're going to listen to, what, ner what nature you're going to respond to. And that's all at your disposal, at your prerogative.
And uh, it's pretty amazing when we start to act and walk like Jesus, uh, how people might respond to us. So I hope that we can leave off here with great expectation that if you've had one divorce or 20, God loves you. And there's no condemnation. But if you're on divorce number 20, I think you need to really look at maybe what the common denominator is in those marriages because it's, it's unlikely that you found four, five, six, seven bad partners, bad spouses, very unlikely. Um, but God loves you, and there is hope, and there is healing. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. It's sobering. It's difficult. But, Lord, we love your law. It's so good. Lord, thank you for wanting to watch out for people. Uh, thank you for wanting to watch out for spouses that are being dismissed frivolously. Lord, thank you that you love men, you love women, or you love people, and you want great things for them. I pray, Lord, that we be those that love our spouses, that wait on the, uh, the people that you do have for us. We be people that act like Jesus in arguments, that humble ourselves, that walk in the Spirit. Pray, Lord, for those hurting from a divorce, whether you be with them today, that they would know your presence, that they would find their security and identity in you, and they would know uh, your love for them and just deeply. So thanks for being good. We really appreciate it. And thanks for being wise and helping us as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.